This is Geek Gab with your hosts, John, Brian, and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for Saturday, October 28th, 2017. We would like to uh, welcome all of you brave, bold listeners who have turned into here the show live today. Today's show is future history for fictional purposes. And before we get to our great guest, uh, I want to stop and give my fellow hosts a chance to say hi. Hi. Hey, everybody. Uh, it's, it's been a good week. Looking forward to Gab today. How's it going, Brian? Oh, it's it's going better. From the huge pile of work on my desk. So, feeling energized. Glad to be back. Sorry for the absence last week, but... Um, had family matter to attend to. That, that was a lot of fun. And I'm just glad to be here. Glad everyone in the chat's here. Glad our guest is here. Now, would you like to introduce our guest? I would love to. Today's guest is scientist, inventor, and author Hans G. Schantz. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Yes, you did. Outstanding. As, as another guy with... Um, a German and a Teutonic name that can be difficult for for these English to pronounce. Um, I stand in solidarity with you. It's how I always know until marketers are calling, by the way, when they mangle my name. How, how about you, Hans? Oh, I, I get chants all the time. <laughs> from from a people in New Jersey, probably. Yep. Which is too bad because it, it rhymes so well. Why would you ruin that? Um. <laughs> Brian, that was a terrible introduction. But terrible. That was just awful. Thank you. You ideally speaking, one would at this point in the show give some background info so that those who have tuned into the show who have not necessarily heard about our illustrious guest before can uh, get up to speed. I see, so that's that's the format we're working with. Yes. <laughs> that's why we need that's why we need cue cards for this. <laughs> I would like to get up to speed. Uh Mr. Shantz, I I'm not familiar with your work at all. Well, I'd be happy to introduce myself. Uh I am um my day job is as a a scientist, an inventor and an entrepreneur where I work for a company that makes indoor location systems. Uh, in my spare time, I write books. I've written a nonfiction book on ultra-wideband antennas and uh, decided a few years ago to branch out into science fiction. I've written two novels now. My debut novel uh, was uh, The Hidden Truth. It actually got up uh, into the top 10 in alternate history on Amazon. Wow. And the sequel to that is A Rambling Wreck. Okay, uh, I'm gonna de derail the show entirely. What the heck is a location system? Uh, an indoor location system is like GPS, but it works indoors. So people or assets you want to keep track of have a little tag associated with them and we provide a real-time update on where you are so uh, 
you know, from a science fiction point of view, it's a bit like looking at the Harry Potter Marauders map and getting to see where uh, all the people on your team are, except that uh, we can calculate the, uh, the locations and the distance traveled and the velocity and what zones you're in and do uh, uh, alerts and alarms entirely without use of magic. It's all in software. What's the uh, distance discrimination on that? Well, it depends on the application. We have uh, one uh, NHL hockey team that's using it in training, and they're the ones who are probably pulling the most statistical data out of it because they're keeping track of distance traveled in a workout and the velocities of the players. Uh, that particular system is actually integrated with biometric sensing, so we can keep track of uh, everyone's heart rate, and you get a really good idea of uh, who's working out and who's recovered from their injury and who's slacking off in practice and, and so forth. So the, the coaches really like using it as a training tool. So I mean, how, how precise is it? Down to what, like, what measurement? Our mean accuracy is about 40 centimeters or so, about, you know, call it 16 inches. We use a, a proprietary low-frequency technique that uses really long wavelengths. And uh, those long wavelengths do a great job of bending, uh, diffracting around obstructions, so we don't have the kind of blockages that a lot of the higher-frequency, more line-of-sight type location systems would have. All right. Now, having thoroughly... Um, Having thoroughly derailed the discussion, uh, your novel that you won best, or that you got in the top 10 alternate history uh, novels, uh, give us a quick description of what it's about. Sure. Uh, it's set in an alternate timeline that is very close to our own, except that when the 9 11 hijackers attacked, they managed to hit the, uh, the White House and the Capitol instead of the World Trade Center. And in so doing, they killed President Gore. And so President Lieberman and Vice President McCain in a unity ticket have uh, uh, taken even more draconian anti-terror surveillance uh, measures than have been taken in our own timeline. But that's really in the background, and the, the main part of the story is about a young high school student who uh, lives in the uh, Appalachian Mountains in Tennessee and discovers an old book with some subtle clues in it that lead him to discover certain aspects of electromagnetics that were discovered 100 years ago have been suppressed and covered up by an evil conspiracy. And of course, in the nature of uh, all good conspiracies, you never ascribe to stupidity what you can ascribe to active malice. So uh, this, the conspiracy is responsible for a lot of the, the mistakes and consequences that we see in political life today. So there, there's a heavy uh, political element to it as well. Outstanding.
I'm no. still chuckling to myself at uh, at Lieberman. <laughs> I, I'm from I'm from Connecticut. Yeah. That's that's been a hilarious joke my whole life. Thanks for sharing. Now, <laughs> we all okay. Everybody in the audience, take a moment and feel bad about feel bad for Connecticut. Um, well, where would no one notice an entire town full of robots? Connecticut. What um, now, Brian? You had uh, I'm presuming, I'm assuming, I'm concluding based upon my close reading of the text of the title of the show that you were going to use the incidences and subjects of this particular novel to illuminate some aspect of uh, creating a novel, writing a novel, and I'm guessing uh, creating, doing the world building for an allo historical background. Am I missing the boat on that? No, you are right on target. That's one of the things that Hans and I discussed before the show. And that was uh, his choice of topic. And I mean, you just heard the description of his book. It perfectly dovetails with the idea of world building, sort of using con conjectural science, trying to forecast what direction science is going to evolve in, and also looking at the history of technological development. And so Hans, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about what... What particular past, what, what, what's one particular past line of development in technology and what is one possible future derivative of that that you used in your books? Well, you know, in my book, what I assume is that uh, it, it, I'm actually bringing a lot of my day job into the, my science fiction uh, you know, my company uses these low-frequency radio waves that work in what's called the near field. So I've had to do a lot of original work understanding uh, how electromagnetics works and how the electromagnetic energy that's bound up in and around an antenna manages to decouple and radiate away. And I came up with some innovative ideas and when I looked into them further, I was deeply surprised that some of the concepts and models that I've come up with weren't discovered a hundred years ago. And you can take a look through the writings of some of the uh, electromagnetic masters, the, the followers of Maxwell who took his theory and fleshed it out and uh, developed it where everyone else went and ran with it. And somehow they never quite got to the point of looking at things the way I've managed to come across. And that's really what got me started on this. My, uh, my starting point was to suppose that, well, perhaps they had and someone wanted to erase all the evidence. And starting from that premise, then I had to concoct who they might be and why they might be concerned about having this electromagnetic knowledge out there and uh, what steps they might have taken to to cover it up but really my approach uh, effectively just cherry picks from stuff that really happened like for instance 
the uh, uh, person who developed modern electromagnetic theory, James Clerk Maxwell, died at his prime in, in his 40s before he really had a chance to flesh out his theories. And I ascribe that to my evil conspiracy. The scientist who first discovered radio waves and did a lot of the critical work to understand how they work and, and how electromagnetic radiation happens, a German scientist named Heinrich Hertz, uh, he died when he was in his 30s. Another scientist who really anticipated Einstein and was working on a lot of the basic concepts of relativity and showing how they arrive from electromagnetics, uh, uh, an Irish scientist named George Fitzgerald, he died uh, in his 40s as well. So I, I took those real life facts and wove them into my uh, conspiracy. But, you know, I wanted to talk uh, about more than just, just my book. I wanted to talk more in general about how you go about anticipating history. Because, you know, most of the, the historical influenced science fiction really goes about it from, from, you know, two points of view. One, you know, the simplest is just a straight linear interp. Uh, you, you take a, a look at how things are going right now and make a modest interpolation into the future. So you know, a lot of the classic speculative uh, political novels, you know, 1984 or Brave New World, were taking a look at the then present day politics and extrapolating it in, into the future or you know, something like uh, Atlas Shrugged, which does that. Uh, from, from a political point of view, or, uh, you know, uh, Harry Harrison's Soylent Green, where the idea is uh, the environment's bad, we're making it worse, and how will it be when the environmental apocalypse hits us? Uh, you know, those kinds of uh, uh, interpolations, you know, there, there's a broad range of science fiction and speculative fiction that uh, addresses those. You know, the Cold War fears, there's you know, classics like Canticle for Leibowitz or uh, Alas Babylon. So, you know, the, the simplest kind of, you know, let's use history and predict the future is asking yourself, well, what's the day after tomorrow going to look like? You know, how will the future look if current trends continue? And I actually wanted to see if anyone else had any good examples of science fiction or speculative fiction novels that take that kind of approach. Yeah, sure. And to boil it down for sparring writers in the, the audience, what you're doing is a, a specialized application of the old rule, which is, you know, how, how do you come up with a speculative fiction plot or plot conceit? is you take something mundane and just ask what if about it. And I love how you're doing that about somewhat anomalous or open-ended historical occurrences in the history of science, you know, taking these sort of anomalous early deaths of these great pioneers and ascribing it to a conspiracy. It's just asking, you know, what, what if the, the deaths of Hertz and Maxwell were, were caused by you know, the sinister cabal so that that's great. Um, one example, uh, the husband of a writing teacher of mine is a, a published author. And um, I'm trying to think of the name. 
can't quite remember the, the name of the series because it um this was some years ago and it was kind of a a minor niche cult series but he was doing historical research and he found that at some point in the 19th century later in the 19th century mark twain and nikola tesla shared a carriage ride like a a pretty lengthy one i don't know if it was all the way across country but like they they were in this carriage together and he thought okay well they both write their notes about like a, a, another passenger but they don't name him so i thought okay i will take that and make that my main character so it can be like this fly on the wall in in this coach where the, these two great men are having this conversation and he worked it into the plot Um, the type, specifically the type of um, story that uh, you're writing here is called the secret history um, mm. story. That is, and it's very, very common in like, you know, people who want to go back and say, okay, well, vampires were real uh, or whatever. There's a secret history of the world to where everyday life and history looks exactly like how we would expect it to be, but there's a secret history and the novel explores and uh, reveals that secret history, the true truth behind uh, behind the events of the world. And so just about everybody um, in role-playing games who have some kind of alternate, um, you know, alternate modern day life have have to implement some form of secret history just to explain how you know well the fairies in the middle ages were real but they've been underground and things like that and then they very often come up with quite clever twists on okay well this is how this the, the one i'm thinking of right now there was and i don't remember the exact name of the role-playing games so you'll have to apologize someone did a role-playing game that was basically highlander the movie uh, a role-playing game and they went through and detailed the world history and said, well, General Bernadette, who got hired to run a country, um, he was actually a Highlander and he did all these things. And this other person off here who did all these strange things was actually, you know, an immortal. They actually had lived for centuries and so on and so forth. And they did a very, very clever job of spinning their secret history. And it allows you to do some really, really cool things. The more that the audience already knows about real history or the more you conclude them into real history uh, the more they can appreciate the tricks that you play with it absolutely um larry korea's monster hunter series does the same thing um the white wolf the white wolf's masquerade right the secret yeah, the vampire history the darkness. they're they're always trying to figure yeah. out okay so what sort of clan or faction is this historical figure a member of one of my favorite examples of contemporary fiction that does this very well is uh, uh, you know, Jim Butcher's Dresden Files, where it's set in what's ostensibly uh, you know, the, the present day, but there's a whole supernatural world that is not uh, accessible or not noticed by us, us mere mortals. And it's effectively the same thing that Larry Correa does in Monster Hunter. Yeah, exactly. And uh, Nathan Housley in the chat is pointing out that one of the most fun things to do with these little tweaks to history is exploring the unintended consequences, like a black swan event, and then 
kind of trying to reconcile that with the historical record, you know, or not. Have you ever had any involvement with that? Running anything like that? Um, I've got a question, because this is kind of interesting. Other than the ones you've pointed out where you did research into the background of electromagnetic science, are there any other historical events that just jumped up and down and shouted out to be incorporated into your secret history? <laughs> well, actually, yes, because it, there's a very long backstory to my, my secret history. In my second book, uh, there, there's an elaborate quasi-mythological story about the uh, uh, Shaolin monks of China and how in the late 1600s a, a group of these monks were uh, uh, asked by the emperor to save the empire from an invasion and so they went out and saved the uh, the emperor and saved the empire uh, you know the the brave band of some 120 or so uh, warrior monks who took on an army many times their size and through their sophisticated learning and knowledge and uh, martial skill were able to, to defeat the enemy. And then once they had uh, emerged victorious, uh, their, their teacher wanted to take over the empire. And the monks refused and wanted to go back to their monastery and study. So their, their teacher bided his time and then whispered in the emperor's ear to uh, convince the emperor that the monks were conspiring against him and were a danger to him and got the em emperor to uh, launch a surprise raid with overwhelming forces to wipe out the monastery. Well, then the, uh, there were only a handful of survivors and they, they fought a, a rebellion against the emperor and ultimately failed and had to uh, go separate ways to build their strength for the eventual future uh, uh, restoration of the, the correct rule and lineage in China. And that, that is the, actually the origin story for most uh, Chinese Tongs or secret societies. Uh, many of them regard themselves as the descendants of those, those monks. So I wove that uh, quasi-mythological historical background into the novel as well as kind of the, the previous step before the uh, events that were taking place in the 1800s. See, and there's, um, there's a difference between an alternate history and a secret history. And an alternate history, I mean, Harry Turtledove, right, is the master, obviously. Uh, he's written tons of books, and he has, a, he has a couple of tricks that he uses to do them. But still, he does um, alternate history books where X and such an event changed, and because of that change, the world today is remarkably different, yet strangely similar. Um, and so... That is an alternate history novel, is where, you know, what if the South had won the Civil War? It's really, really common one in, uh, in, uh, in American alternate history or allo-historical writing. A secret history is almost the inverse of that, where 
you assume that everything happened the way it did up to a certain point. Um, you know, like uh, you could say, well, JFK was president. He was assassinated. Lyndon Baines Johnson became president. We increased our presence in Vietnam. Nixon became president, yada, yada, yada. All the historical events were the same. And yet behind it all, you find out that um, the Vietnam War was really a battle between two clans of superhuman cannibals, you know, ghouls versus vampires or something. And so you write a novel set in Vietnam where uh, the North Vietnamese are ghouls and the South Vietnamese are ruled by, can uh, ruled by vampires. Um, that's that's an, uh, a secret history novel if that doesn't cause a change in politics past the Vietnam War. So yours is a secret history novel up until basically the Florida election or the Florida recount when Al Gore becomes president instead of George W. Bush. And then you veer into uh, an alternate history for like the last decade or so. Exactly. Yes. Now that's subtle genre blending. Good job. So did you have any hints or tips for people who want to do this sort of thing in their novels? Oh, well, it, it really just requires having a, a good background and familiarity with the actual historical events. Uh, you just have to know a lot more about it than your typical reader. And you know, the, the, the trick is to make 90% of it exactly, absolutely verifiable in history. And one of the fun things you do is look at some of the most improbable things that actually happened historically and figure out how you can set them up with uh, made up fictional, very pedestrian things that are eminently believable. And then you spring the, uh, the, the peculiar coincidence on uh, people and you know that's the thing that they go and they they take a look and you know they they google it and lo there it is and there it is in history and it's i've had a number of readers who uh have uh, been deeply surprised at some of the the coincidences that that i point out like for instance part of the background of my story uh is that the preferred method of assassination by the conspiracy, at least up through the discovery of radioactive materials in the, you know, around 1900, they would just uh, inject someone with a radioactive poison and let them develop cancer. So, you know, all of these, uh, you know, Maxwell and uh, uh, Fitzgerald both suffered from stomach cancer or abdominal upsets, Hertz, uh, suffered from a kind of jaw malignancy, and it turns out that the uh, uh, the the German Kaiser had a very similar jaw, or I think larynx cancer, just a year or two uh, before Hertz's, and because he had that cancer, he only reigned for ninety days, and instead of his more benign and rule, we ended up with Kaiser Wilhelm and World War I. So that made a really great 
turning point that I could ascribe to the function of the, uh, the conspiracy. So, you know, really, it, it's a matter of looking into the historical events or the historical period you're interested in and cherry picking uh, some of the most interesting, improbable, unlikely, and fascinating events, and then constructing a coherent narrative that weaves them together. Um, if I could make a recommendation to the audience, if you have a sec, I would recommend GURPS third edition book called Timeline. It's uh, $7.99 at the, um, at the GURPS PDF website. It is... Um, a listing of history from the Big Bang up until Desert Storm, because 1990, 1991, which is when the book was uh, published. But what it has is a broad overview of history, including a lot of critical events that could easily have gone one way or the other uh, to change history totally, and then discusses how to apply that to make stuff uh, happen differently. So it's a great introduction to alternate history. It's a great introduction to some key moments in time that you can use to plot out an alternate history. And it also talks about how to extrapolate them. It talks about the several models of extrapolation. Like there's one model of extrapolation that is like the butterfly effect. You change one tiny small thing and everything is completely different. There's another, another model which is, uh, you know, celebrities always reappear, right? So you change something and like aliens invade during World War II. This is a Harry Turtle Dove series. Aliens invade during World War II, but in the 1960s, Martin Luther King is still a prominent figure and other people in the 1960s are still a prominent figure, you know, 20 years after aliens have invaded. In reality, would that happen? Probably not, but it makes for great books. And we're not talking about reality anyway, when we're talking about changing history history. Um, and let me give you an example of what Hans was just talking about. At one point in the wars between England and Spain, the English managed a huge victory over the Spanish Armada and sunk quite a lot of it. Now, again, I'm, I'm remembering this from a decade ago. So if I if those of you who are historians, if I have made uh, errors in summarizing it or whatever, please forgive me. Um, in any case, the reason why this could happen is because there were storm winds blowing from England towards Spain, blowing and blowing and blowing and blowing and blowing, which slowed the Spanish fleet from being able to deploy for weeks. For weeks, these winds blew as the Spanish fleet tried to make its way up to England. And just when the Spanish fleet was going to turn around and get out of there, the winds instantly shifted to the exact opposite direction and blew and blew and blew and blew and prevented the Spanish from moving very, very quickly. So the weather itself seemed to conspire to get the Spanish fleet sunk. Now, if you take that event and even change that just slightly, let's say you made it more plausible where that didn't happen. The Spanish might have won and England might have been conquered. You can go to any one of a number of different ways there, or if not conquered, invaded, and you'd have a large uh, Spanish presence, a Spanish kingdom in the south of England, whatever you wanted to do with that. But that is an example of several things that happen in reality, in the real world, that really happened. 
that seemed so completely bizarrely out of place, so completely bizarrely um, strange that you can build just about anything you want into making an alternate history and it will be less bizarre than history itself. Um, I'll pause and allow my uh, good friend and host, uh, Mr. Nimai, to comment. Yeah, that's a, an excellent example of the, the Spanish Armada. And also Bradford Walker in the chat points out that uh, a, a term for what you're talking about with history changing, but celebrities always reappearing is sticky history, right? It's where you, you pick certain things that, that are hard to change and they almost become like focal points or access points everything else can revolve around. So yeah, that groups module sounds like an excellent resource. Um, let me tell you what I've done, folks. I have put a link to uh, Mr. Schantz's uh, Amazon page in the description beneath the video. I'll also include a link to the Warehouse 23 page for GURPS Timeline for those of you who want to check it out. And again, it's it's $7.99. It's 8 bucks as a PDF. And for those of you who want to write um, alternate histories but aren't sure where to start, it's a great basic introduction to it. Um, and I would recommend it. Yes, yeah, wasn't that a Doctor Who concept too? Oh, yeah, Bradford Walker just mentioned it in chat, fixed point in time. Well, he's Johnny on the spot today. At least one of us is paying attention. <laughs> um, so let me ask you a question. Once you have selected, uh, and yours was fairly recently, so you didn't have to make a ton of big changes. Um, but for people who want to make, um, make changes further back, how would they go about developing that into a, a coherent alternate history? Well, that, that is a very good question uh, because you know, the, the, the whole linear interpolation model of tomorrow is going to look a lot like today, only more so in some characteristic, uh, that obviously breaks down if you try to extrapolate it too far ahead. You know, there's a general recognition that there are cycles in history and a lot of different models and theories and interpretations of how those cycles work. One of, I think, the most useful is, I haven't seen a name for this, but I, I like to think of it as the four-cycle model. And that's the basic idea that uh, strong men create good times good times create weak men, weak men create bad times, and then bad times create strong men. So you have cycles of uh, you know, heroic, hardworking people creating a successful and prosperous society, and then a, uh, a period in which there are hedonistic excesses, and everyone gets lazy and forgets the, the morals and ideals that made their success possible, uh, leading to a, a collapse. And then from that, that collapse or setback, you have people uh, arising through the difficulties to create a, a new equilibrium at uh, hopefully a, a higher level. There's a little more scientific approach to that that a, a 
gentleman named Jim Penman uh, came up with. He called it biohistory. And he characterizes history uh, using a couple parameters. C for civilization, uh, how well uh, the, the, the culture is civilized, uh, willing to accept a loyalty to higher ideals, to uh, uh, you know, a constitution, to distant leaders, uh, rather than local, tribal, or clan, or family ties. Uh, the other axis he has is vigor, uh, how uh, warlike or aggressive the society is. So you can, you can do that, uh, good times, bad times, uh, you know, strong men, weak men on that, uh, uh, he would call that the, the C and V axes. Uh, it's a real fascinating theory that he ties into epigenetics and uh, tries to explain how the conditions under which one generation lives tend to influence future generations. Uh, he does a lot of uh, analogies looking through Chinese history and uh, through our more limited recent history, uh, for instance, claiming that World War II is in essence an echo of the stresses suffered during World War I. So it's an, it's an interesting framework to try to extrapolate uh, future histories off of. And in fact, you see a lot of uh, future histories, like Heinlein's future history was uh, uh, very much in that spirit where Heinlein from his perspective in the 1940s was predicting that in a generation or two we would have what he called the crazy years where there would be all kinds of aberrant behaviors and uh, you know uh, wild uh, you know hedonism and breaking of conventional social standards and then he predicted that out of that chaos would arise uh, a, a strong man. Uh oh, something some like in still order and so forth. So, you know, that that's an example of that in uh, uh, science fiction. Um, one of the things that uh, I don't remember if it's in GURP's timeline. I think it was in GURP's timeline, but again, I'm remembering something that I last read well over a decade ago. Um, is that they point out that the number of improbable events in history is improbably large. That in point of fact, history usually goes in bizarre and weird ways that people don't expect. And so if your goal is to have a specific historical setup, a specific outcome to your alternative, alternate history, then all you need to do is construct a sort of semi plausible series of events that lead up to it because it, no matter how unrealistic it may seem, as long as you're sticking within the bounds of what's physically possible in your universe, it's going to be almost certainly less unlikely, less unrealistic than reality itself. Reality is significantly more unrealistic than just about any piece of fiction is allowed to be. But as long as, so as long as you're coming in under the strangeness that the real world implements, um, then you don't really have to worry about whether or not you're extrapolating things rigorously. I mean, 
Let me just give one quick example that verges on politics, um, or that is about politics, but I, I want to use it as an example because it's the strangest one I can think of in recent history. Who would have thought a decade ago that a cartoon frog that began as a character in a comic strip, a left-wing comic strip, would get picked up as a bizarre mascot by a vast array of people on a tiny little corner of the internet, and then that cartoon frog would get spread all over the internet because of some other events completely unconnected from it, and then it would get picked up and used by supporters of one presidential candidate to where another presidential candidate would hold an entire press conference decrying the use of this cartoon frog. Now, I don't want you to think about those specific series of events, but think about those events as a prototype, as a pattern for how history influences later, uh, how in, event A influences event B influences event C, and none of them are linear extrapolations. Linear extrapolations of history are almost always wrong history goes in unexpected directions. So if what you want to do is to create a plausible alternate history, all you need to do is come up with a series of explicable events, research your history enough to be able to explain why things went that way, be ready to, to tweak it if you find facts that you know go against your first impression, but that's all you need to do to get an alternate history off the ground just keep in mind that history bends in strange ways, and you don't have to go in a straight line extrapolation. In fact, straight line extrapolations are almost never how the real world operates. Well, yeah, to some extent, I, I would agree with you, certainly on the level of the particulars and the details in the, the history. Uh, but... I think in terms of the broad currents, that's not necessarily going to be the case. Like, I, I think if you tried to make a future history where a decade from now there'd be a, uh, you know, the country would be ruled by a king and there'd be a medieval style uh, uh, aristocracy and, and you know, something like that. Um, there's a future history um by oh dang it uh, sm sterling where there is a strange event that kills high technology across the planet and one of the people who takes power is a history professor who deliberately styles his army after medieval um laws medieval social mores and then because he knows how to make uh, medieval weaponry, he's well prepared for the uh, situation he finds himself in, and his army begins expanding and conquering a wide range of territory. Um, so it may be that not that that would rule the entire country, but given an improbable enough event, you can actually justify that. Um, you could, but that that's a bit of a you know, a deus ex machina, you know, not something that you would expect from the usual. Well, I, I guess you could just call that your black swan event that no one was expecting technology to stop working. But uh, 
if you want to make your future history or the, the, you know, the history that you are employing in your futuristic science fiction realistic, the easiest technique is to take real life, real world human history, file the, the names and the numbers off of it and turn it into a story. You know, for instance, uh, Asimov's foundation was just taking the decline and fall of the Roman Empire and setting it in space. And you know, there are any number of people who do that. Like the Napoleonic Wars are a real popular historical period that people have taken and adapted to space. You know, David Weber's Honor Harrington series, uh, or you know, more recently, there's been a fascinating series by E.C. Williams called Westerly Gales. What he does in that series is assume there is a post-apocalyptic civilization a few centuries from now that has managed to survive on the Kerguelen Islands in the Indian Ocean. And they've retained certain elements of modern technology, but a lot of what they do is sail around in, in sailing ships and he uses that as a basis for some uh, uh, Horatio Hornblower style uh, naval adventures. One of um, one of the things to keep in mind is that natural events have a far more subtle impact on history than we sometimes appreciate. Um, during the 1800s, there was a series of solar flares that caused, that burned out um, telegraph wires across the country um, that caused a great deal of disruption and damage. If those same solar flares happened today, it would basically be the equivalent of a planetary EMP. It would literally, you know, destroy electronics, uh, our uh, internet communication systems, smartphones, all of that stuff, radios, fried. And so we would be thrown back on communications technology and things like that of you know early last century. We, all of the modern automobiles would no longer be able to function because their computer chips would be burned out. And we would be thrown back on cars and trucks that don't have that. And we'd have to start manufacturing from there. So there's a historical event that happened in the 1800s. If it happened 100 years later, Boom, you know, instant, uh, instant uh, technological scythe um, or a scythe that destroyed modern technology. In times past, there have been weather events like, for example, in the early 1800s, there was a miniature, uh, there was a worldwide um, collapse in temperatures which forced a lot of people to migrate from one place to another to get to better farmland. And um, that had a subtle but powerful effect on history. Uh, let me give you one example. Uh, was Joseph Smith, who founded the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, moved to New York. His family moved to New York because of that drop in temperatures. And obviously that changed. Uh, American history in uh, a subtle but pervasive way. And so if what you want to do is to get to a specific point, there are lots of things available to you that can cause chaos. Um, 
there are volcanic eruptions that can either you know destroy a large part of the world kill a large part of the world or just disrupt a small part of it um the dang it i'm going to say the wrong author and i'm also going to say the wrong series names there is a book series about um a meteor strike that wiped out northern europe and the culture that survived was the indian subcontinent being ruled by a british overclass um and they you know that it set a couple of hundred years after that event and it's kind of a steampunk book and i'm sure somebody in the chat's gonna uh uh gonna be able to come up with a series um it's a uh a steampunk style series but that's where it veers off is that meteor strike so there are meteor strikes there are volcanic eruptions there are sudden uh, if the planetary heat increases or planetary um heat decreases all of those things can cause um can cause things that uh that would otherwise be improbable and we were talking earlier about how hard times create uh you know tough men and stuff well one of the things that that influenced the world war ii generation the generation that fought world war ii was the drought was the great dust bowl in the 30s that uh brought a lot of privation to people so if what you want is instead of let's say you know in the 19 60s instead of the hippie movement becoming so big instead of counterculture becoming so big you introduce a an epidemic that devastates the population that will take it in an entirely different direction so whatever model of history you want to use there's a wide range of historical events that are real that can change things in big ways or small ways to get exactly what you like oh peshawar lancers thank you to the chat the Peshawar Lancers books um, were based on were what I was talking about with India with a British overclass. Um, and Harry Turtledove, what he does is exactly what, again, uh, Hans was talking about. He takes real history and transposes it. He's got a series of books called, I think the first one was Joe Steele, where he takes the rise of Stalin, the history of Stalin, the personalities around Stalin, the events that allowed him to take control in the Soviet Union, and just transplants it to the United States, where he assumes that, that Joe Stalin, literally Joe Stalin, the actual historical personage of Joe Stalin, immigrated to America, uh, or his parents immigrated to America, and he builds an entire alternate history off of you know, photocopying the historical events. So if you look at most Terry Turtledove books, that's that's how he tends to build things is photocopy historical events and put them either in different geographical places or different parts of the timeline to build his alternate histories. And it's been effective. Oh, and, and it also helps that he's a really, really good author. Um, it does help. So... Did uh, in fact, I think the the coolest series that I haven't read yet that I want to read is the United States of Atlantis. My title alone sold me just now. <laughs> yeah, it, um, I just got a picture in my mind, and it's pretty awesome, isn't it? I mean, unless you're talking about some uh, Aquaman book, then it's probably not so great. <laughs> um. All right, we are running out of time, so let's let our guests have some time before we go. 
Oh, sure. Uh, one final point I wanted to make is how, you know, the, the cyclical nature of scientific discovery, because a lot of the future technology that people extrapolate is based on uh, you know, linear interpolation from what we have, and there's a whole set of science fiction tropes, like various methods of faster than light travel, for instance, that are, are really common. What you see as you look at the history of science is uh, cycling from periods where fundamental discoveries are being made and then into a period where those discoveries are being explored and extrapolated and their consequences worked out and elaborate mathematical models uh, being constructed to explain what's going on. So you can look at Aristotelian physics where Aristotle concluded that uh, terrestrial motion is linear and celestial motion is circular. And uh, his successors took that as axiomatic, as akin to the axioms of Euclidean geometry and started working out the consequences and came up with all of these superpositions of circular motions to explain the geocentric model of the solar system. Well, then people started making more accurate measurements, started applying more sophisticated models like ellipses instead of circles. And finally, Newton took all that and came up with uh, fundamental new breakthroughs on the laws of motion and on uh, gravity. But then a century or so after that, it was back to treating those as being fundamental obvious axioms and working out all the mathematical consequences. And you ended up with very elaborate uh, action at a distance theories to explain how not just gravity, but also electricity and magnetism worked. Well, then Faraday came up with the idea of fields, the idea that there is some mechanism surrounding these charges and currents that give rise to the effects of electromagnetics. And that's the idea that uh, Maxwell and his successors, the people I've been talking about, Hertz and Fitzgerald and uh, Oliver Lodge and, and some other people like that, uh, took and ran with to work out our modern theory of electromagnetics. But since that time, it's gone off, you know, particularly through quantum mechanics, into a very counterintuitive set of mathematical models that allow us to predict what's happening but have ideas that are uh, you know, every bit as confusing and counterintuitive as the notion of you know, instantaneous action at a distance was back in, in Faraday's time. So uh, uh, you know, trying to extrapolate the course of technology, it's interesting to try to imagine what might be the more common sense basis that uh, explains what's going on in uh, quantum mechanics and would give you a basis for uh, developing a future technology. And that, that's part of what I'm trying to do in my series as well. Um, one of the things to keep in mind for people who are building an alternate history, um, I don't think we have enough time for it. We might have to do that on another show. Um, yeah.
we need to we need to taper off here, not jump into a whole new subject. So I'll have to do that at another show. Okay. Um, thank you for coming on. We have links to your website, to your Amazon page, and to GURPS timeline, all in the uh, underneath the video, as well as uh, links, of course, to uh, Brian's website, his books, and to my articles on the Castelli House website. Um, John, Brian, do you guys have anything else to say before we take off? I'm good. Hey, thanks for joining us, Mr. Shantz. It was a great talking to you. My pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation. I look forward to maybe doing it again sometime if you'll have me on. Yeah, we'd, we'd love to. Uh, I'd also like to thank Hans for coming on. And I do want to remind our listeners that for Halloween, my breakout horror sci-fi novel material is only 99 cents for Kindle. And the other two books, Soul Dancer and Secret Kings, are also on sale. So you can get the whole Soul Cycle right now for less than nine bucks. All right, folks, thanks for tuning in to Geek Gab. Uh, we are out of here. We have got uh, our address, for those of you who need to know, is youtube.com slash geekgab. And be sure if you uh, come to the channel to subscribe. In fact, double secret subscribe by clicking on the little bell icon so you get the notifications of when the show is going live. You can come and participate in the chat. We've had a very, very uh, lively chat, some great suggestions on um, – books that you can read. Uh, one suggestion we did have, I want to pass along before we go, is from Nathan Housley, talking about Eric Flint's 1812 and 1824. Uh, and in the author's notes for those books, he describes uh, how to build alternate histories, methods to build alternate histories. So in addition to Gert's timeline, you can check out those two novels and uh, get some tips on how to build alternate histories for your own role-playing background or your own uh, novels. So, uh, again, lots and lots of things like that come up in the chat. Uh, very, very informative, especially on days like today. So, by all means, don't secret subscribe so you get the announcement so you can come and participate live. In addition, we're not just available on YouTube. We are available on the Google Play Store. We are available on the iTunes Store. And we are available at SoundCloud.com. Just do a search for Geek Gab, and you can get us on any, any, any of those places. We uh, are freely available on your Android device or freely available on your iOS device. And if you want to strike a blow against the corporate overloads, you can just download the MP3 file at SoundCloud.com. Thanks for tuning in today, folks. We are out of here, but don't you worry. Don't you fret. We will be back.